now we actually have these billionaires who could be spending their money on social issues, but instead are like, we like, like, <laughs> let's all go into space. And I think the reaction there is, we want space to be a we thing. But for the the we to go into space, we all need to have food and housing and, you know, our basic human needs taken care of before we could even contemplate as a species, like going out there and understanding what it would mean for us to be on another planet or do something else that level of new. I really love the like conceptual framework you're building here based on we versus we. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I do things. (laughs) I really, really love it. This is Queers at the End of the World, the podcast where as flightless birds, we have to walk 500 miles over snow and ice to get to our ancestral breeding grounds. But once we're there, the beer is cheap, the music's loud, and everyone dances with strangers. I'm your host, Nino. And I'm your host, Nat. And today we're talking about The Martian, both Andy Weir's 2011 novel and the 2015 movie starring our hero slash Hollywood doppelganger forever and always, Matt Damon. All right, well, we'll start with a plot summary, but before we do, I just want to remind you all that Queers at the End of the World has a Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash queers at the end of the world and find all kinds of awesome extras, including Extended Universe, which is our curated media list for each month's episode, and What If My Dude, which is the two of us goofing around on video talking about apocalyptic scenarios, and uh, all kinds of other stuff in addition to that. So come check it out. There's levels starting at three bucks. It's super easy to support the show, and we so deeply appreciate it. Yes. Is Matt Damon your hero, Nino? I don't know. Matt Damon looks just like me. (laughs) This is very true. In fact, when we were prepping for this episode, I got a selfie of you and your cat. Just bullseye Matt Damon, like the both of you. You're looking at this cat when you're adopting it thinking this looks just like a scientist engineer stranded on Mars and trying to science the shit out of the planet to get back home. Yeah, I mean, my cat is much more emotionally demonstrative. (laughs) Well, that's not very hard. I mean, Mark Watney hardly has a personality. No, no, it's true. It's true. (laughs) So Mark Watney is our main character, and he is an astronaut with NASA, and he's on this mission called the Ares 3. And they've gone to Mars. They're supposed to be there for a month, do some sciencing, take some samples, and then head on home. Instead, very early in the trip, this windstorm kicks up and starts to blow over their rocket that they need to get home to such a degree that they have to abort the mission. As they're heading back to their rocket ship through this like massive windstorm, Martian dust blowing everywhere, and pieces of their habitat blowing around, one of those pieces breaks off and blows right through the abdomen of Mark Watney, our very main, very male, very white character. So thinking Mark Watney is dead, the team leaves. In fact, the antenna has poked a hole in his spacesuit such that it was able to reseal itself with his dried blood. (laughs) Following the windstorm, Mark Watney wakes up, drags himself back to the habitat, pulls the antenna out of his abdomen and discovers he is alone on Mars. What follows is a series of amazing science experiments and forays into figuring out how to survive alone in space inside this NASA habitat structure that's essentially this 
big inflated canvas tent that contains enough life support and supplies for a team of astronauts to live there for about a month. Mark Watney is probably going to be there three or four years before the crew of the next Ares mission returns to Mars in the course of their normal mission planning. So Mark Watney sets off in a series of growing potatoes, creating water, and finding a way to try to communicate with Earth and let them know, hey, I'm out here. Please come get me. I did not die. While Mark is like busy growing potatoes in his own and his teammates' poop and listening to the disco left behind by the captain, um, which he really hates, he uh, is being mourned back home and they're holding his funeral. And then um, one day a satellite imagery specialist at NASA is like looking at the pictures of Mars and being like, hey, somebody's driving a rover on Mars. Somebody is definitely there. Mark Watney's alive. They realize, and the whole world gets kind of caught up in this like save Mark Watney fever. And they try to figure out how to get him enough food to survive and how to get him home. Basically, the rest of the book is a series of cause and effect, like experiment, mistake, disaster, recovery, as Mark makes his way through about four years on the planet and eventually has to like cross this huge amount of space on Mars to get to the Chaparelli crater where the launch vehicle that has been sent there for the following mission is waiting for Ares 4. So instead of that vehicle being used for Ares 4, Mark is going to use it to launch himself into space and go rendezvous with his own crew who have decided in like a very dangerous, like maybe we will end up just floating in space forever till we die maneuver to return turn to Mars using the gravity of Earth and come and pick him up, swing by, take him home. Right. (laughs) So now the ending is different depending on whether you watch the movie or read the book. But suffice to say, Mark Watney shoots himself up into space, covered with nothing more than a tarp. He floats out in the direction of the Aries. And ultimately, through a series of kind of crazy, a little bit implausible maneuvers between him and one of the crew of the Aries, manages to grab onto that spaceship as it's rocketing by, climb back inside, and after spending untold billions of dollars on this project, they bring Mark Watney safely home. Mm -hmm. And also now the US and China are friends. Right. (laughs) We Happy friends! (laughs) Well, yeah, so I feel like we kind of owe listeners a little bit of an explanation for why... Um, We're talking about The Martian because it's not necessarily like an obvious apocalypse pick. So I guess I wanted to start out just by asking, what was it about The Martian that made you feel like it really belonged in this season, especially? Sure. So the first thing I wanted to talk about here was just to connect this with an episode we did in last season where we talked about the book Hatchet by Gary Paulson. Mm -hmm. And similarly, when we talked about that, which is about this kid that gets stranded in the wilderness and sorts through his masculinity Mm. and goes to this sort of narrative of survival that's also touted as being more realistic. Here, we have like a similar narrative of lone wolf masculinity, survival by pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, and all of it is happening in space. Yeah, I mean, I think... It's really interesting to me how the mission that they're on is like pure science. It's just like there's so much of of the sort of reason for being on Mars in this book is like unquestioned, the pursuit of knowledge, the pursuit of like scientific progress. 
and like in this very pure sort of like science for science's sake way. But I do think this book is another book that's basically Robinson Crusoe reinvented for a different context. But like before we get to all that, I also remember you telling me that this is a book your dad really loves. Yes. He always says he loves it because of how realistic it is. Yeah. And that always really interests me because, of course, what does that really mean? Is that a value we should hold up? At times, I find myself very aligned with my dad and thinking like, there is a real value in things that communicate themselves as realistic. Yeah, because on the one hand, part of the pleasure of a survival narrative like this, and I think it goes for like Boys in the Woods stories, like Hatchet and Mice at the Mountain, and Robinson Crusoe in Space stories, and it also goes for like zombie survival stories. It's almost like reproducing the pleasure of figuring things out for yourself. Yeah. Like as tool-making beasties, like we (laughs) get a huge rush of happiness. I, I, I certainly do. When I like find the right stick to like, help me lever something out of the ground, you know, (laughs) like I'm delighted (laughs) with myself. Oh, Um, 100%. I I mean, it's just such a beautiful experience to like, problem solve, think through things that actually fix persistent problems in your life. And having that as a communal experience, I think is also really fun. Totally, totally. Yeah. And then the flip side of it, especially when we're talking about survival, I think, is that like realism tends to be sort of extrapolated from what people understand to have worked. I I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of how often apocalypse narratives are described as unrealistic when queer people and people of color survive in them or like people who are not like ruthless murderers. Right. At all. Like that's considered unrealistic. And so like, you know, for a narrative like this, in order for it to feel realistic that Mark Watney can survive on Mars, he has to be like, the master of so much knowledge and he has to make all of the guys that already exist feel like he's just like them. Mm. And then it ends up in this sort of like feedback loop of like, well, how can we get anywhere if we always are having to convince you random nerd guy that we are you in order to like be realistically living through a situation, you know? Right. I know. I mean, I feel like there is an aspect to both the book and the movie that having spent time around different groups of engineers, game designers, and scientists, there's a certain set of things like that that are just part of the normal fabric of conversation that don't need to be explained. Mm -hmm. And their humor is often dirty and very, everyone's silly and very goofy about all this. And they, they really love what they do and they love working together. And when it's good, it can have a really kind of wonderful vibe to it. And I I mean, I always really want to be included in that vibe. Yeah. I will say I have sometimes not been included because of not being the right gender for being included in that kind of humor. But part of the realism that both the movie and the book go pretty fucking hard on is like, (laughs) who's not? Yeah. And how gender is like the center of that. There's so many misogynistic moments in the book and the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, ugh, it's so frustrating to to have to like go along for the ride with that because like it's thrilling and you're excited and you're reading these like detailed descriptions of how he puts together these just unbelievable constructions. Yeah. And then in the middle of it, it's like, there is this woman who is this, the sysop on the spaceship. And every single time she's mentioned, it's in a context of sexualizing her. Yeah. That was really upsetting to me because it felt so much like it was reproducing the 
harassment and misogyny specifically of women in computer science. And I mean, unfortunately, it was because that's realistic, like, at least realistic in the sense of the way women are seen through the male gaze. Yeah. It was an example of how the movie and the book, in a way, are like not aggressively problematic. And there's so much to love about them. But I mean, again, we have a straight white cis man at the center of it. Mm-hmm. So first of all, the lens is looking at him as the most important person in the ecosystem of people that are engaged in this whole rescue setup, going to space situation. Which is everyone, like, in the (laughs) world. Literally everyone in the world is like, we have to save a white guy. Like, all of our economies, be damned. (laughs) (laughs) We must save Mark Watney. (laughs) You know, people are being murdered right here on Earth. But Mark Watney is out there growing potatoes, and we got to get that guy home. The first time, like, when the movie came out in 2015, I saw it in the theaters, and I was like, you know, okay, fine, I don't really believe it, that, like, the governments of the U.S. and China would just, like, put billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars, like, just straight into space for one guy. But um, I do find it even harder to watch now (laughs) like in the middle of covid when it's like you know for our economy we can't manage like nine hundred thousand people right (laughs) maybe realism or not it feels provoking i mean i think having gone through covid the thing that you start to think is you're immediately just thinking about this sense we have from covid of who gets to survive being Mm -hmm. this really painful question that has been raised over and over again in different contexts and conversations. And it's like, well, obviously, Mark Watney gets to survive, you know, is the like the resentful reaction you can have where you're like, what if it was Johansson stranded instead of Mark Watney? Like, right? Like, is there the possibility of ever even having a book where Johansson's not just like, it's okay, you can just leave me here. I'll just take one for the team. I I don't don't spend it's too much money. It's too much. (laughs) <laughs> Johansson is obviously from Minnesota because of that name totally <laughs> you know a question that I keep coming back to when I think about survival stories like this is what is the fantasy that this survival story is playing out like what is like when people love a story like this so much I mean there are just the elements that everybody loves of like you know cataloging your your potatoes etc like humans just really enjoy watching people do that. But right. <laughs> there's also, I think, a fantasy that's playing out that's about having a common goal in good faith and working on it together with like all of the smartest people in the room. I mean, the thing that that brings into my mind is like climate change, right? Like yeah. this sort of like fear of like, can progress get us where we need to go? Right. I love I, I, I'm, I was completely swept away in that fantasy of like yeah. everyone working together at that moment. Yeah. And to me, I feel like that's really different from other survivalist narratives. Like Watney, in a lot of ways, like is not a lone wolf at all. He wants so badly to get back to his crew. He doesn't have much interiority. But the one thing we really do know about Mark Watney, besides that he like hates disco for some reason. <laughs> What's wrong with disco, bro? <laughs> it's just like so easy to hate but actually like there's a lot of really fucking good disco amen (laughs) side note gloria estefan not disco 
But it does make complete character sense that like that guy would just be like, it's got more of a beat than Charlie Pride. <laughs> just go. <laughs> oh, Watney. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but gosh. like, but like he just wants to get to his crew. He yeah. just wants to like be in his special chair next to his friends. And he misses them so much. I want to say that I think that that is a fair thing to write. The bonds that those people have are really evocative to me. I mean, and I think that a lot of those kinds of bonds are about being able to understand each other in this other way that doesn't involve like long feelings conversations Mm -hmm. and is more about understanding how the other person thinks about things and operates and figuring out how to kind of Tetris your brain with their brain to produce something really amazing. Yeah. In the, in the, in the book, especially they kind of share that problem solving, but there's also just like the only emotional life I would say that Mark Watney has in the book is this longing to see his crewmates again. And I think that that's just different from the way that we've seen the lone wolf before. Like it's not just for the sake of his own survival. It's also because he wants to be with these other people. Right, right. I mean, when you bring that up, it makes me want to loop back a little bit and pick your brain about this idea of Robinson Crusoe in space. Mm -hmm. Well, I feel like, I think that there's the sort of fantasy of space colonization, which, which is like not the point of the book. Like it's not in the plot really, but I do feel like it underlies the whole thing to me. Mm. Like I have this feeling that it's just sort of laying the groundwork in some ways, for thinking about Mars as a place people live. I agree with that. I mean, there is this sense that this is all going to continue and that these are the early stages of what later will be a place that people are. It's never said, but I 100% agree that the implication that this will continue is strong. Yeah. And also just like we see him living there. And I think when we talk about these survivalist narratives, there's always a really strong connection to the idea of the frontier, which is like a super evocative place in Mm. American myth-making, right? Like this idea of struggling against the landscape to make a home for yourself and to survive. But then when you do, that's your land and that's your place. And there, you know, that's not something Mark Watney wants. Like he just wants to get off the planet. But I think that that's underneath um, the whole story. And it's less of a obvious thing in the books, but in the movies, I think that it's done through the images. They have all of these shots of the landscape that are really beautiful. Part of the point of seeing this movie is this sort of like idea that you are getting to look at Mars. The desert landscapes are filmed in Jordan, but I would say for an American audience, it reads in a lot of ways as Southwest. And I think that's really like intentional and about um, creating this evocation of the Martian landscape as like sublime vistas that are beautiful and that you want to see. And of course, this beautiful landscape story of survival is like overlying a history of like actually genocide and removal. Right. And in the book and the movie, colonization as an idea is so unproblematized. Right. And one of the things that the book and movie emphasize hugely is the emptiness of Mars. Right. Right. There's even a part where he talks about being a pirate. Yeah. 
I forget exactly what it is, but it's like legally because of my situation of being here, I'm a pirate and I'm taking possession of this land. Yeah. Very unproblematized in any case. So, okay, like I have so much to say about shit in The Martian. (laughs) Like the growing of potatoes in? The growing of potatoes in, but there's so much more. In the book, Mark Watney grows some potatoes. They're very helpful to him. He eats them the entire time. And at some point, the potatoes are killed. But he like literally says, like, not a big deal. I've still got them freeze dried. I have enough potatoes. It's fine. Right. It's not like the biggest disaster and tragedy. Whereas in the movie, we spend so much time on the potatoes. And there's a moment in the dialogue where he talks about like, you know, what is colonizing a place? And he's like, I went to University of Chicago. And somebody there told me that if you grow food in a place, you've officially colonized it. So I'm the I colonized Mars. And right. Mm -hmm. And like, that's like, you know, he has a lot of lines like that, where he's like, I'm the man who did the thing. I'm the first. What professor told you that at your university, I wonder. But anyway. (laughs) I think this goes back a little bit to a conversation that we had in our last season with Rue Duss and George Warren when we were talking about Mad Max. He was talking about how indigenous agriculture doesn't look like European agriculture, right? You don't plant stuff in rows in a cleared field. It's not obvious what is necessarily wilderness versus what is agriculture because it's cultivated ecosystems. Right. You know, he's talking specifically about his the Catawba nation that he's a part of, like I'm not trying to make a a broad claim for all indigenous peoples, but like that distinction was really important to Europeans when they were talking about why it's okay for them to come to America and just take everything Mm. because they're like, well, the indigenous people aren't doing anything with it. Like it's just sitting there. (laughs) Right. And what that means for like Mark Watney on Mars is that there's all of this sort of weight on him growing the food in the Martian soil and like literally the shit that he uses to grow the potatoes is labeled with his name. Right. right. <laughs> like this is so exciting to the 18th century nerd that I am. <laughs> The mixing of himself with this dirt creates soil that can then grow food that he can then eat. And in the movie, there's all these little moments where, like, like he's on his way to the Chaparelli crater to, like, get on the Aries 4 and go fly home. And there's this scene of him charging the electric vehicle. And he actually, like, buries a little pile of poop in the Martian sand before he leaves. <laughs> and he puts his fucking name on it. <laughs> Oh my gosh. It's interesting how fundamentally like built into modern narratives of this particular type of survival heroics are set on that framework. And of course, you said this yourself, it's not about this, that it's his planet now or anything. Mm hmm. But it's just fundamentally present in the way he's interacting with the landscape and thinking about who he is in relation to it. Absolutely. And that's the thing, honestly, that makes this most like Robinson Crusoe, even though the character of Mark Watney and the character of Robinson Crusoe are very different. Robinson Crusoe has a lot more interiority and backstory. But but I think there's a way in which like the work that this story is doing on the idea of colonizing Mars is like just making it thinkable that it could belong to us. I think one thing that connected with what's missing for me in the characterization is he's not like a person. Mark Watney is like the idea of a person. 
Yeah, I think that's exactly it. He's like every man. If yeah. every man was like just shockingly competent engineer slash botanist. Right. And if there was like an actual person in that slot, I feel like the lens of the movie would much more specific as to like, how is this character understanding what they're doing here? Does this person think of what they're doing as being colonial? But Mark Watney does not have an internal narrative at all. So it just gives itself over to be a vessel for that same like historical series of logical conclusions. Right, right. So part of what you're saying, like, obviously, these things are interconnected, but it's not just about like demonstrating, you know, the, the like perfect kind of masculinity. It's also about in order for the story to do this kind of work of preparing the way for thinking about Mars as colonizable, like Mark Watney has to be a stand in for like human broadly, which means in our culture, like he has to be a, a straight white guy. Right. Yeah. So you said you had a Freudian reading. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh my God. <laughs> well, I think this connects to the ideas about masculinity you were pointing out, which is like, okay, we have this guy who is super duper competent, like perfect masculine ideal. And we also have this sort of interruption of the way that story usually goes, which is that he has these friends he really cares about. And some of them are women. Yeah. And his commander is a woman. Yeah. Right. So we have two female characters that are on the astronaut team. And one of them is Johansson. And we've already talked about how the narrative kind of like disposes of her by turning her into a sex object. Mm-hmm. And I think in the book, the way that it manages Commander Lewis is by turning her into the commander, right? Like, she's not a woman, she's my boss. Right, right. And she's basically turned into this sort of trope of the literal only characteristic of her is that she likes disco. Yeah, she likes disco and she's in charge. Yep. So so he does, you know, like, and I think that within the military NASA framework of like the the sort of realism that that it's relying on is this idea that like you follow the chain of command. So he right. doesn't have to think about her being female because she is in charge, mm-hmm. you know, except that I think that there's something about the way that guilt is deployed as like an emotional mechanic throughout the narrative where it's like he's worried about her guilt over him that does, I think have a little bit more emotional weight because the guilt of women is, is, is more of like a presence. (laughs) Right. Right. He's like, Oh, she's a woman. And so she's definitely going to feel guilty about abandoning me. Well, yeah. And I think, and I think that that is, you know, that kind of connects her character to this idea of like motherhood and like, who are the women who are in charge of us? Like our moms. Right. So, Mm -hmm. and that's like the only, like the, you know, we love her, we hate her. And the we here I'm talking speaking for is like the sort of sort of cis white hetero every man, right? Right. The Mark Watneys of the world. The Mark Watneys of the world all had to get born. Yeah. And when they did, a woman was in charge and she made a bunch of decisions for them that they did not get to question and they did not get to engineer their way out of. And that, you know, that Freud did a lot of work on talking about like what that does to people. Like, you know, we know that that we know from like watching like, you know, like Psycho and things like that, that that sort of idea of the mother of a woman being in charge of a man as being like a kind of a psychological trauma that boys in this culture have to manage their way through to be like oversimplifying, but also, I think, accurate to some extent. 
Yeah, um, that's that's really interesting because he brings up his mom's anxiety about him going into space several times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like women are sort of like holding this anxiety and, you know, and this guilt. And but anyway, like Lewis is sort of this like, like perfect, like so unsullied mom who who like really, really cares about Watney. Right. And so she she mm-hmm. ends up being this sort of like channel for caring about whether Watney lives. Anyway, the the ending scene of the movie is like just so much Watney being reborn as as Lewis's child. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love it. I love it. Because like, and it's, it's all visual. It's just like he goes like, but I don't know. It's this weird thing where like, instead of being like the the helpless baby that's like born from a a woman's womb and like can't do anything about it, like. Like the one situation that you're completely helpless in, <laughs> like, like Watney, like actually in, in the movie, he like comes up with this plan so he can get closer to the ship and get caught, where he like propels himself out of the circular hole. That he, <laughs> it's like he's oh like my God. he's like popping up out of his like little ship womb and being like, "Mom, mom, where are you?" So he like propels himself toward Lewis, who is tethered to the ship. She's like sitting in this weird chair. And then that chair is tethered to the ship by a very long, very bright orange cord. And (laughs) Watney move toward each other, right? So Watney is is borning himself and uh, and she is also participating in the birth of Watney. And then they, they get to each other and they grasp each other and they like whirl around in space. And the whole scene is this like bright red orange cord whirling around the two of them. And then like it's reeled slowly back to the ship. So there's just this like very woomy umbilically like sort of male birth thing going on at the end <laughs> that I think is like about like, like a sort of an antidote to the like utter helplessness that Mark Watney feels in the moments when he's like released from the planet, he's in space. Like there's nothing he can do anymore. Right. Right. He's like done. Like he's done. Like he's Jerry rigged his last Jerry and it's just up to his crewmates to like capture him and bring him in. Yeah. And it's this sort of like way of, like bringing power back to the character to like have him participate in his own rebirth. <laughs> I am obsessed with this reading of the ending of the movie. Like, thank you for giving me this lens on it. I really thought it was interesting because of course the book does not end like that. Yeah. And I had had a conversation with my dad about it And one of his big complaints was, I hate how the movie ends. Mm. And for him, that moment and the way it was changed between the book and the movie was unbelievable. And he was, uh, you know, we actually haven't had the full conversation yet because he was like, tell me what you think about the ending. And apparently I'll do it on live on a podcast. But great. I, yeah, it was like, It was so strange because there was actually a moment in the book where Watney says, if I can't get to you, I'll poke a hole in my suit and try to like Iron Man my way over there. Right. And they're like, no, that's insane. Do not do that. Do not do that. And I felt like 
to his credit, Andy Weir wrote that because he was like, this is what the fantasy would be in this situation. Yeah. In a real life collaborative sciencing of the problem, everyone would agree on what the right solution is. And they would absolutely, you know, nix any possible thing that is going to create an unnecessary level of risk. Right. And so he acknowledged the idea of that, but was like, these scientists would never let that fly. They would figure out a way to go get him without him, like, I don't know, you know, like doing this thing that like wouldn't even really work in space. Like, Mm -hmm. I I think like, I was talking to my partner about this because we watched the movie together and he was saying like, it wouldn't propel him enough for him to catch up to the speed of... Yeah, no way. The other person. So, like, it's not even a realistic idea. Back to the idea of realism. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the commander was the one that came to get him was also so bizarre. Right in the in yeah, right. So there's this there's all this kind of weight on who this who is a specialist in what. And in the book, uh, Doctor Beck, who is a, who's a, another white American guy, is the specialist in spacewalking so he is the one who goes to get mark watney i'm remembering that right right yep yep yeah and when i saw that like before i sort of noticed the umbilical cord and i was like i get it like my first thought was like oh hollywood can't show a man catching a man in space oh my god that's so true like it's just like it's an unallowable amount of intimacy and touching for these men to 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 hold each other spinning in in the atmosphere through their spacesuits. Right, literally like even in a context of a life-threatening space stranding. These these like people are like no homo, like totally. So we'll send the mom out. If Beck had been the one in the movie to go and get Mark Watney, what would have happened is that they would have like almost caught each other and then Beck would just have patted him on the back <laughs> accidentally in a bro hug and then he just would have flown off into into you know zero gravity and been gone. I mean uh, that would be oddly satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit, sorry bro. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh my lord. Yeah, I feel like the entire movie is engaged with this tension of like how vulnerable can he be mm. without ceasing to be not realistic, but a viable avatar for like men's projections of what they want for themselves. Right. <laughs> what I'm thinking about is our episode on the Matrix. Mm-hmm. And when we talked about the Matrix, we were thinking about neo being born into this sludge and then being picked up and taken onto this ship in the real world outside of the matrix oh yeah interesting Uh and then there is this process of taking this like male body that has no muscles no capabilities and like working on it and caring for it and stimulating it and helping and touching and just giving this massive amount of human care Setting aside the, like, it's frustrating that it's only these, like, vessel-like everymans who, like, get this kind of care. There is such an element of fantasy, I think, in the idea of the homecoming. Pushing aside anything but the necessity of people taking care of you and taking care of your body and, like, 
laying hands on you to heal you. It's so interesting that you point that out because like I hadn't thought of that connection, but yeah, like in both of these scenes, there's this necessity of like rebirth and being a baby again that these men have to experience in order to like participate in the world anew after their ordeal. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I wonder if there isn't a connection there to the kind of idea of Mars as a blank slate. What's interesting to me is there's an interesting sense of being born into importance and centrality. It's like it's the trauma of patriarchy. And then like, he's like endured it and then like, re- like birthed himself into agency or something like. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like there's a connection between that and the planet as this like, empty slate for the further like projection and space of ownership for this everyman guy. That is like how you get people to go and help you colonize a place Mm. like is by telling them that it's like empty and open for their for them to like be birthed into agency (laughs) on, you know, oh, oh, yes. When I watched the movie again for the podcast after COVID, like in this moment where like all of these fucking billionaires are talking about like what planets they are going to colonize and like how they're going to do what governments haven't done and like go colonize Mars. And like, it's so gross to me. Yeah. And stupid and awful and bad. But like watching the Martian, like I, I felt this rage at like Elon Musk boiling up in me as I was watching the movie And I was like, what is this? Like, what? Like, why am I feeling really, really fucking angry at Elon Musk right now? (laughs) (laughs) And I was noticing that it was happening in those landscape scenes. And I was like, Mm. oh, there's a part of me that sees this beautiful land and does feel that longing, you know? Mm. Like, does feel that sort of like, I want to go there. Like, I want to be there. I want to see it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then, like, while I'm watching the movie, I'm like, oh, like, that whole, like, I could I could go to space, I could go to Mars thing is so co-opted. And, like, the whole, like, myth of NASA and government science and government exploration of space as, like, a non-military, pure human good, which it has never been. But, like, that's the, that's the story, right? And I'm right. like, I can't even have that anymore. It's sort of like it's sort of like this idea of like, oh, we can suspend our disbelief about Mark Watney. Like, I can't watch that movie and suspend my disbelief about Mars colonization as a purely scientific pursuit. Right. Because right. Right. of these millionaires coming in and like burying their poop in the sand in a huge way. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh my gosh, seriously. Like when we talk about going to space right now in 2022, the thing that always comes up is we think about these billionaires, these people who with their private companies are setting off into the stars and kind of carrying out this, this fantasy of being first colonizing planets, getting to decide everything. Mm. And the Martian is really pre that it's, much more situated in an idea of these sort of good faith actors who work at these large government institutions, people who deal with a lot of bureaucracy and 
paperwork, but are nevertheless there because of like the meaning and importance of science and exploration. And it's it's just it's interesting because there have always been relationships between private industry and government. So mm-hmm. it's never as simple as like just one or just the other. But I mean, I think that just like these days, we're a lot more aware of just the fundamental like sleaziness of of these guys that we see kind of railroading off into space, even though they work with the government and the government works with them to make these huge spacefaring projects happen. Yeah, yeah. I feel like the version of space in The Martian is is space as the sort of realm of possibility and the fantasy of possibility and like of of this like massive change that could happen where, you know, the sort of boundaries of humanness could change and we could we could be able to live on other planets. And that is like a very much like a we, like emphasis on the like we could live on other planets. And I think that's part of what allows like Mark Watney as a figure to be the like everyman that he is mm-hmm. in or any way that he is sort of set up as in the movie and the book. Because I think one of the things that kind of pulls folks up short so much with Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and Richard Branson or whatever being the billionaires in space. It's like, they are so explicitly and clearly not every man. Right. It's like with the, with the government, even though it's like not true and it's never been true, we have this, you know, mythology at least that like government endeavors are everyone's endeavors and that everyone could potentially have a say and have, have a, you know, a chance to be part of, the good things that come from that. Whereas I think, like you're saying, it's sleazy. It's like when we look at at these billionaires doing it, it's like, oh no, they're definitely in it for themselves. Like even as much as they all try to like talk about like humanity and this and that, it's like, oh no, you're just trying to get mining rights or whatever. The distance between the mythology and the reality is is like just a much easier road to travel. <laughs> We're all like, no, we see you. We know what you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's an aspect to the fantasy of going into space that I think is a really legitimate vision of a collective public move as a species out into the great beyond. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what draws people to become astronauts and astrophysicists. And I have a lot of respect for that curiosity. And I think that also at the same time, the actual circumstances of people going into space have always been connected with a form of sleaziness. Um, It's just that we've all become a lot more aware of it in the past few years due to a whole host of things that are not connected with space that have made us incredibly critical of what's happening with the government and with private industry. And of course, not the least of which is the fact that like now we actually have these billionaires who could be spending their money on social issues, but instead are like, you know, again, we like, like, (laughs) yeah, no, it's like, we want to go to space, but you know, nobody wants to go to space as like Jeff Bezos's employee. That just sounds absolutely horrifying and yeah Yeah. horrifying i think horrifying is is right and so it feels like a really good time to bring in this article by shonda prescott weinstein um called becoming martian space travel through the middle passage it was published in the baffler not all that long ago just a few weeks ago i think and so many of the things that we're talking about are part of her thinking about space and i wanted to start with this one where she's talking about just this particular idea of like billionaires in space and how it kind of creates this cynicism for us. Yeah. So she says, Musk has an extraordinary amount of undemocratically allotted power. 
He claims that he is planning to take humanity to Mars. Back in reality, our global ecosystem's ability to sustain life is collapsing under the weight of centuries of white supremacist capitalist colonialism, the exact structures that allow Musk to be anything more than an engineer with a Twitter account. People murmur about how these billionaires are planning to escape and leave the rest of us behind on a catastrophically warmed planet. And it is easy in this context to transition from Star Trek fanatic to hostile anti-space Luddite. How can we imagine leaving Earth's surface and making a livable home elsewhere when we can't even get it right here? So, you know, it's exactly what you're saying about like, there's so many things kind of to solve here, but it's not just like do one thing and then do the other. I mean, I don't think either of us would ever say like, (laughs) you must be committed to linear progress. But like, right. <laughs> but, but rather that sort of the the idea of going to space feels like a turning away from the fact that like, there is so much to do and that like going in a rocket, you know, isn't going to get you away from it. Right, right. Like Octavia Butler's Christopher Columbus ship, right? Yes. Like, but I mean, what she's saying seems to me to be not to turn away from the idea of going into space entirely, She's obviously incredibly invested in spacefaring and the possibilities as a theoretical physicist and cosmologist. So I guess the question that comes to to mind for me with this is like, I, I can really feel some of that cynicism and what you were saying about like, we don't want to go to space as like sweatshop employees and some like Amazon rocket or whatever. And sometimes when when people say that, I just feel like, oh, but it just feels so inevitable to me that that's how it's going to be. Yeah. And I mean, I'm curious, do you also feel that sense of inevitability or find in this article hope for another framework for what going into space could be? I mean, I think there's definitely a part of me that is like committed to the kind of cynicism that that feels that inevitability. Like I really, really, really get that. I think I do find something in this article that, is helpful for like how else to think about it or anyway you know (laughs) this is going to sound funny but like almost a little bit of gratitude to these space bros for just being so baldly themselves in this (laughs) endeavor like because it does make it so much easier to see what this is you know like instead of it being like (laughs) we're gonna go plant our flag for humanity you know it's just like clearly clearly in service of the bottom lines of, you know, this passel of bros. But like, I think what it is, you know, it's like the second half of that, um, of the title of the piece is space travel through the middle passage. And so Prescott Weinstein is like reaching toward a lot of the sort of Afrofuturist identifications with Mars um, and with outer space that have been like such a huge part of Afrofuturism you know, all through the like 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, Butler is is certainly like who I think of first, but there's also um, in this article, Prescott Weinstein talks about Nikki Giovanni's poem, Quilting the Black Eyed Pea, We're Going to Mars. And then, you know, there's also the Tracy K. Smith book. Yeah, it's called Life on Mars. I mean, it's fascinating to me to draw that line because I, I don't know, I hadn't thought about it before, this idea of going to Mars as this displacement, this idea of being taken from a place that was home to you before, Mm. which obviously feels incredibly connected with the Black experience and really changes the narrative of going to Mars from this 
wee idea of how fun it's going to be to like live somewhere else and do something new and be on another planet. But but really thinking about it in terms of the humanity of the people that have to be in a spaceship for a year just to get there, Mm. you know, living in a place where you can't go outside without a suit on, figuring out how to understand what being human means when you're not on earth and also humanity in the sense of being humane to the people you're trapped in these space bubbles with for Mm. all of this. It, It just feels like so important to think about any spacefaring journey in terms of that. But then specifically, like, you know, Mars is really the nearest place where we can even imagine going and living. Mm -hmm. Um, So it makes sense that it's not just about like setting off into the universe on a Star Trek-ish kind of like, let's see what's out there. But really this idea of going from planet A to planet B and being tasked with making that a sustainable home. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I feel like I mean, it's occurring to me for the first time, like how when you see it in Sun Ra, when you see it in Stevie Wonder music, it's so often not framed as like going somewhere, but as being from somewhere else. Like heaven is 10 million miles away. It's just like that idea of being an alien in America and having to like metabolize this experience of really, really violent displacement. It's not the American story that we like to tell of like, of like starting over and going somewhere new, right? Like, you know, obviously it's problematic in and of itself, but even that is like ridden over being forcibly kidnapped and taken on the the horrors of the middle passage. It reframes this, this journey, both in the way that like it, it enables us to start to imagine the idea of displacement and the strangeness of like, you know, the way that Nikki Giovanni frames it in this poem, Quilting the Black Eyed Pea, is that it's quoted in the Prescott Weinstein article. She says, the trip to Mars can only be understood through Black Americans. And she's talking about this idea of the Middle Passage. And Prescott Weinstein talks about how, you know, painful that comparison is because an uncomfortable journey is not the same thing as this horrific experience that kidnapped Black people went through in the Atlantic journey. But the line in the Nikki Giovanni poem is like, to ask us how were you able to decide you were human even when everything said you were not. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel like just thinking about that, it's an important distinction, hopefully in our imagination about what a journey to Mars would be, or, you know, a life on Mars would be, we're not imagining it in the circumstances of people being forcibly taken there. Like, that's not the world building that I want to explore, particularly, Mm -hmm. but rather thinking about the way we take ourselves there as a we right. being situated in an experience that's connected to it, a, a history that we bring with us. Mm. And I don't know, I guess like honoring that, you know, you're right. It works on so many levels because I think one of the things it does do is make visible the like reality of compulsory migration of being kidnapped under threat of death. And like, I think that that is sort of haunting our concept of what space travel would be in this moment because Mm. of the way that like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos make that visible as a very real possibility. 
And so I do think that there is a resonance there and there's a huge value in drawing that into visibility because it's so hard to see through the myth of like government is for everybody, space is for everybody, like given the fact that our government is not for everybody, like, and you know, even on earth space is not for everybody. I think it does help to make that visible because it makes it thinkable. And I think if it's unthinkable, it's harder to articulate what we don't want. So that's like one piece of it. And then the other piece, I think you're right, is just like, that then like some of the positive work, like some of the world building that has to happen is like, how do we imagine ourselves as human in like this just vastly flipped and, you know, paradigmatically exploded (laughs) version of what it would mean to exist in a world where space travel was possible and people could live on Mars. It's like one of the things about the Nikki Giovanni poem relating back to all the conversations we've had about food and potatoes and growing food in your own poop and all that. Like, it's so interesting to me how quilting the black eyed pea kind of ends with this really long list of like food you would bring. I'm going to read it. It's To successfully go to Mars and back, you need a song. Take some Billie Holiday for the sad days and some Charlie Parker for the happy ones, but always keep at least one good spiritual for comfort. You will need a slice or two of meatloaf, and if you can manage it, some fried chicken in a shoebox with a nice moist lemon pound cake, a bottle of beer because no one should go that far without beer, and maybe a six-pack so that if there is life on Mars, you can share. Popcorn for the celebration when you land, while you wait for your land legs to kick in, and as you climb down the ladder from your spaceship to the Martian surface, look to your left, and there you'll see a smiling community quilting a black-eyed pea watching you descend. I love that. And what it makes me think of is how we said you take it with you. Mm. And we said that in this frame that was this sense of inevitability in a way. Mm. But then this is like an alternative narrative of what you take with you and what you can take with you into space. Yes. Yes. And where where what you take with you is like also beautiful and good. <laughs> and chosen by you and specific and sensory and about the body, but mm-hmm. in a bunch of really wonderful ways. Right. Not the potato as the like perfect vehicle for calories, but the potato as comfort food and as traveling food. The food of Mars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I feel like that kind of brings us back to Mark Watney and the Martian because it kind of gives a little bit of a different flavor to the story of like masculine wholeness and overcoming that the Martian is so much in service of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because part of what you see in the Martian is this guy whose level of competence is so extreme and so ultimate and that's just you know white male protagonitis is is here (laughs) he can do everything not only is he a botanist and a mechanical engineer but he like can set up this camera thing with these hex codes which is something a computer science phd would know right now but then like on the flip side of that we're thinking about a guy that has to eat guy has to take a shit that has to sustain himself and you know by the end like he's really shown to be like running out of gas on the project of keeping his body alive the way that the camera lingers on the failing body of this man as he's starving to death i think it does kind of gesture toward this possibility that space could like take us apart you know could that it can kill you that it can weaken you that it can like make you 
like have to deal with your own poop, <laughs> you know, which is, like, <laughs> I mean, not to get Freudian again, but poop and death are, are often sort of like poop is sort of seen as this terrible abject substance that we don't want to touch because it reminds us of our humanity and the fact that like, everything ends, you know, that everything has to decay and that we're like part decay, you know? Yeah. (laughs) So there's an association, I think, with death there and and like the triumph of sort of turning death into life. Like, I feel like that's really like it shows it, but it shows it as part of the project of transcendence. And and I think that's what that rebirth scene is all about. Like, you know, I could talk about poop forever, but like the... (laughs) Please do. I love the Freudian interpretation vis-a-vis poop. <laughs> yeah, it's like actually, to go back to that Shonda Prescott-Weinstein article again, there's a moment where she actually talks about poop um, because everything about this article is perfect and great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, say more about that. Let's hear the part about poop. Okay, yeah. So she's talking about conversations that she's had with science studies and disability studies scholar Ashley Shu. And so she says, Ashley Shu likes to remind people we haven't even totally worked out poop in space. Read any account by astronauts about life in space, and inevitably you get to amusing notes about floating poop. There are lots of diapers involved. And for some people, life in diapers is normal and necessary. I once shared a panel with Shu where she patiently explained why colostomy bag users are more ideal astronauts than those of us who use toilets to defecate. Conjuring the ideal spacefaring body requires a different kind of imagination. (sighs) There is an aspect of that I really love because, like, at the core of that, like, idea that a colostomy bag user is a more ideal spacefarer is that problem solving. Mm. The interest in space is a problem that given sufficient time, sufficient intellect, and sufficient collaboration, we can overcome. Mm -hmm. And yet in that particular context, you have minds thinking about it who are better equipped than some others, I would say, to do that problem solving. Yeah. And I I feel like what's happening there is someone is joining the conversation on problem solving, on this like ideal of setting off with the knowledge that comes from being in community with people who have different kinds of bodies, for example, and just literally like a different kind of day. Completely. Yeah, no, I think that that's so right. I mean, the way that shit kind of works in The Martian, I feel like is really illuminated for me by that comparison, because, you know, you have these like neatly labeled bags, right, that, you know, we talked about how they sort of facilitate the idea of like, claiming land, like they act as these little like poop flags in the dirt, right? But like, it's also, it's sort of this way of engaging with having a body and being a human that again is like kind of neatly packaged and, you know, as, as painful as it is to watch him starve in the movie, it, it's like the thing that motivates the urgency of Watney needing to escape and needing to get home is that like space is dehumanizing him. Space is taking away his capacity to be like strong, whole, untouched white man. And I feel like, I don't know, like, it's not something I knew that it's not easy to shit in space. Like it makes complete sense, but I didn't realize that like, floating poop and diapers would be part of it. And it's really important that they are, you know, that's not the like (laughs) whole untouchable masculine body. And I feel like such a project of the Martian is to kind of tie it back up and, you know, bring Mark Watney home, like put the man back where he belongs. And 
it makes me think about like kind of the whole way that we approach so many of the problems that are leading us to be thinking about space in this particular way at this particular moment. There's a sort of like wish for climate change to go away through progress and technology and like wish to put us back in this place where, you know, we feel supremacy over the earth and over other creatures and over ecosystems and feel like human beings are at the top or whatever, instead of having to acknowledge like what has happened and who we are and what we've done and what that means um, and how we have to change because yeah. of those truths. Yeah. 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 There's so much to think about there. I think part of what going to Mars becomes in the context of climate change and extraction is an idea of, you know, amidst something like that, where we have to face what happened and what we were responsible for Again, how do we move on and think about this in terms of continuing to find our humanity? It kind of makes me think about the last scene um, in the in the movie version of The Martian, which is Matt Damon now transformed from space cowboy into uh, <laughs> an inward looking professor type. Oh, I was going to say the chili pepper professor. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Sort of like a sad chili pepper, though. Oh. a thing. So he's, like, professing right now, like, now that he's graduated from space university. He's like, all right, let's get this off the table. You all want to know how I did it. And he's like, I just solved one problem after another. You just solve the next problem. That's it. And I feel like, you know, I have, like, a knee-jerk hell no reaction to that. Because, I know. Because it's just, like, so linear, you know? Like, it just feels so, so straight. And then also, and I feel like, you know, this conversation kind of illuminates part of what that is for me, which is like, if you just solve the next problem, like, it's just a really great way of not looking at what you have been through, you know? I feel like I, just imagining like an alternative version of that where he's like, hey, guys, like, you all want to know how I did it. Well, actually, what I want to talk about is like, that was a really traumatic experience. And it completely changed how I viewed my life. Yes, yes. So we are having the alternate ending for the Martian where he's like, you all want to know how I did it. (laughs) And he's like, all right, form a circle. Right. We're We're all going to talk about our grief. (laughs) Yes, that is what I want for the world. And then they all process and then like after they're done, they're like, okay, now that we've bonded, we can work together and we can start imagining how we're going to go into space together and how we're going to build these rockets and what that's going to mean for all of us and our families and our children and Mm. the people we meet along the way and the organisms and ecosystems we encounter when we get there. Yeah, that's the one I want, where all space travel starts with consciousness raising slash group therapy, definitely. Oh, yes. And there would be like a potluck. Oh, yes, there would be a potluck. (laughs) And Mark Watney would definitely be bringing potatoes. (laughs) (laughs) This has been Queers at the End of the World. Our show art is by the fabulous Ellie Yanagasawa. Get in touch for your own commission at Ellie the Cosmic Jelly. The music for this episode is La Fin des Ericotes by Tintamare. The show is produced and edited by me, Nino McQuown, with marketing and technical wizardry by Nat Mesnard. 
We'd love to hear from you. Find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash queers at the end of the world. Our website is queerworlds.com and you can email us directly at queerworldspodcast at gmail.com. Good luck out there, dear hearts. Maybe that's Matt Damon's appeal is all, all white people are just like, I look just like him. <laughs> he has this sort of like platonic ideal of a white face or something like that. I think you look like him too, Nat. We all look Oh like my him. gosh. It's too real. <laughs> <laughs>